Hey everyone, I am excited to announce that Esther, Something Hidden, Something Revealed, is now available on Amazon as a side study, Volume H, in the Gospel Feast series. The book of Esther is a mysterious one. As written, it is a book with many contradictions. The name Esther means something hidden. It does contain several historical conundrums and a handful of mysteries. It is the only book in the Bible that never mentions God at all. Why? Many Jews today say that it is just fiction, because they can't find any of the characters mentioned within, historically. And yet, they celebrate the book with a major festival, annually. It is also one of the books that is required reading in the weeks before Passover, every year. Not by God, but by Esther herself. Why do this if you insist the book is just fiction? It is one of the only books that Joseph Smith made no corrections to, although he considered it to be historical. How is any of this possible? Esther reads as an eyewitness account, but then struggles with the simple, logical issues and frequently contradicts itself in some very strange ways. How come? Considering that Esther became the most powerful queen of the world's largest empire, none of this makes any sense. Or does it? Despite the wonderful story, we are left with the puzzling questions. Who was King Ahasuerus? Who was Mordecai? Who was Haman? And actually, who was Esther? The answers may just surprise you. The book is not fiction. And in fact, all of the puzzling contradictions were put in place for a very devious reason, and not by Esther. Join us on this astounding historical reconstruction and be amazed at what Esther really tried to do, and how, had she been able to accomplish what she had tried, your life would be very different right now. You think you know the book of Esther? Are you sure? Let's feast on the Word of God together and see what a woman of God can do when she really puts her mind to it. It also might make an incredible Mother's Day gift for the ladies in your life. Happy Mother's Day. You are now listening to Season 4 of the Gospel Feast Podcast. It's time to feast on the words of Jesus Christ. We are ready to begin our studies in the mystical book of Zechariah. We are told that this book opens with a series of eight visions that the young prophet had over the course of a single night. These visions have a great deal to tell us about today, and so we are excited to get Reed's insight into all of them. It is a rare thing in Scripture when God preserves a date for us with such exactitude. While there are a handful of examples in Scripture, there are only a handful. One occurs in the very first verse of Zechariah. Zechariah 1.1 In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, the prophet, saying, The Lord hath been sore displeased with your fathers. Many of the dates preserved in Zechariah can be cross-checked with surviving Persian records. We have the ability to accurately translate them into dates in our modern calendar. The eighth month of Darius's second year is our October-November, 520 B.C. 
the reader must wonder why the Lord would want this information known. We will discover before the end that it is to prove his omnipotence. Only God can foretell events with dates of such exactitude as to stun and amaze us. Demons and pagan oracles speak in twisted dark sayings, but God, when he really wants to prove that he is in charge, regardless of who sits on the throne, uses prophecy and explicit foreknowledge to prove it. On this particular month and year, the great Jehovah was beginning to prepare the world for the coming of the teachers of righteousness, both with the birth of the Messiah and with the restoration of the latter days. Here, he tells his young priest, soon to be prophet, that the sufferings of Israel were brought about by the Lord's anger with Zechariah's forebearers, particularly those who seventy years previously provoked him until he destroyed his holy temple. Now that their national exile was over, here are his words to the people returning home. Therefore say thou unto them, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye unto me, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will turn unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. Be ye not as your fathers, unto whom the former prophets have cried, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye now from your evil ways, and from your evil doings. But they did not hear, nor hearken unto me, saith the Lord. The wonderful thing about the forgiveness of the Lord is that when he is done with a sin and forgives a person, it is over. He is not the kind of parent who says that he has forgiven and forgotten, and then proceeds to remind you of the fact every time you get together. Here he tells the people that he wants to start anew, and if the people are willing to start fresh, so is he. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not take hold of your fathers? And they returned and said, like as the Lord of hosts thought to do unto us, according to our ways, and according to our doings, so hath he dealt with us. Here is proof that the Lord is a man of his word. Was it not true that every single thing the prophets warned early Israel about came to pass, exactly as the Lord said it would? The Lord says what he means. Just as Israel in the days of Solomon's temple provoked him to anger, and his word to them came to pass, so would it be true again. The Lord would speak again to Judah, and he would mean what he said. The remnant of Israel that remained would be wise to listen this time. In terms of historical background, the above verses come between the second and third addresses of the prophet Haggai. Upon the 15th of February, 519 B.C., in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, the prophet, saying, and thus opens the first vision of the young prophet Zechariah back home in Jerusalem. I saw by night, and behold, a man riding upon a red horse, and he stood among the myrtle trees that were in the bottom, and behind him were there red horses speckled and white. Then said I, O my Lord, what are these? And the angel that talked with me said unto me, I will shew thee what these be. This is the first of many similarities in symbols with John's enigmatic Book of Revelation. You will remember that John sees the first four seals opened in the throne room of the Father, and among other things sees four horses being ridden by four riders. John describes these horses as being white, red, pale, a kind of greenish-yellow, and black. This here is the same image.
John is told that these four horses and riders represent white, victory and pride, red, war, pale, disease, and black, death. The Prophet Joseph Smith taught that each horse, with each angelic rider, rode supreme in his respective turn for the thousand-year dispensation in which he was assigned. This concept differs substantially from the secular Christian view that these four would only be present in the days prior to the final judgment of God. The wisdom and depth of the Prophet Joseph Smith never ceases to amaze me. Here is one example of many I could cite. In preaching on the meaning of John's book of Revelation, Joseph said that these four horsemen were already on the earth prior to the days of John the Revelator in direct defiance of secular teaching. And here we find the exact confirmation of this teaching. Zechariah's ministry functioned under Moses' dispensation. So we see that all four horsemen are indeed already on the earth. Zechariah, in his night vision, finds himself standing in the myrtle trees that grew naturally near the base of the Temple Mount and round about the hills of Jerusalem. These were the branches which the Jews of yore used to build their booths for the Feast of Tabernacles. You will note that the black rider is not present here, the only conclusion being that the angel of death was not summoned at this time, although most biblical scholars believe this is merely an omission of the text. Either way, Zechariah asks his angelic guide the meaning of what he is seeing. This is a very wise thing to do. Joseph Smith said that there is a law in heaven that God holds himself accountable for any and all interpretations of imagery given at his hand. You should remember that. And the man that stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are they whom the Lord hath sent to walk to and fro through the earth. Thus, the man upon the red horse answers and says that these are the ones whom the Lord hath sent throughout the earth to survey the scene, carry out the Lord's orders, and report back to him. Again, this correlates perfectly with their later appearance in John's revelation. And they answered the angel of the Lord that stood among the myrtle trees, and said, We have walked to and fro through the earth, and behold, all the earth sitteth still, and is at rest. Their report at the base of the temple ruins is that all the earth is at peace. At first, one would think that this is a good thing, but that is not the intention here. Note carefully what happens next. The Lord's own angel asks the Lord a question, connected with this worldly peace. And then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long wilt thou not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah, against which thou hast had indignation these threescore and ten years? Why threescore and ten? You can do it. Remember our feast together on Jewish mysticism in terms of numbers. With Jerusalem in ruins and the Lord's holy house a pile of rubble, the angel's question is one of dismay. Why should the wicked world be at peace when the chosen of God is imprisoned in exile and the holy city is a ruin? So they ask, How long, Lord, will you forsake your people? You have been angry with them for seventy years. One hears the same pleading of the prophet Joseph Smith when he was in bondage in Liberty Jail, as the saints of Zion were being scattered and injured at the hands of our enemies. The emotion is the same. Doctrine and Covenants 121.1 O God, where art thou? And where is the pavilion that covereth thy hiding place? How long shall thy hand be stayed, and thine eye, yea, thy pure eye, 
Behold from the eternal heavens the wrongs of thy people and of thy servants, and thine ear be penetrated with their cries. Yea, O Lord, how long shall they suffer these wrongs and unlawful oppressions, before thine heart shall be softened toward them, and thy bowels be moved with compassion toward them? O Lord God Almighty, maker of heaven, earth, and seas, and of all things that in them are, and who controlleth and subjecteth the devil, and the dark and benighted dominion of Sheol. Stretch forth thy hand, let thine eye pierce, let thy pavilion be taken up, let thy hiding place no longer be covered, let thine ear be inclined, let thine heart be softened, and thy bowels moved with compassion toward us. Let thine anger be kindled against our enemies, and in the fury of thine heart with thy sword avenge us of our wrongs. Remember thy suffering saints, O our God, and thy servants will rejoice in thy name forever. Just as the Lord spoke peace to Joseph Smith in his time of need, so our Lord is consistent in his dealings. He told his angels in the presence of Zechariah. And the Lord answered the angel that talked with me with good words and comfortable words. So the angel that communed with me said unto me, Cry thou, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with a great jealousy. And I am very sore displeased with the heathen that are at ease, for I was but a little displeased, and they helped forward the affliction. Verse 15 is a fascinating verse for what it both says and for what it implies. Even though the Lord forsook Israel and handed them over to their enemies for punishment, he did not approve of the punishment, nor the severity of that punishment. The Lord is fair, but he is also a man of his word. If he says he will look away for a season, or not hear a people's petition while they are in the hands of their enemies, or during the buffetings of Satan, one would do well to remember the warning. If Satan or your enemies have you within their power, they may very well excise from you the utmost farthing for the utmost period of time before the Lord sends his mercies again. If you do fall into the hands of these, you may quite possibly suffer a punishment far worse than the Lord himself might have given you were you to take it from his hand alone. Be that as it may, the time of separation was over and the Lord was jealous for his people. And so like a husband betrayed by the wife of his youth, only to desire her again, the Lord wanted Israel back. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, I am returned to Jerusalem with mercies. My house shall be built in it, saith the Lord of hosts, and a line shall be stretched forth upon Jerusalem. Cry yet, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, My cities through prosperity shall yet be spread abroad, and the Lord shall yet comfort Zion, and shall yet choose Jerusalem. The Jews say that verse 17 is the proper end of chapter 1. Verses 18 through 21 belong to chapter 2, so we will study them together. Then lifted I up mine eyes, and saw, and beheld four horns. And I said unto the angel that talked with me, What be these? And he answered me, These are the horns which have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. In Eastern thinking, an animal's power came from his horns. Scripture is full of animals being symbols for earthly powers. Man in his fallen state is really one of the weakest of God's creations. 
In a complete slap to Darwin's idiotic theory, man is no match for the great beasts of God's creation. A naked man in the midst of a naked wolf, bear, alligator, lion, or even an angry hornet stands close to no chance in his survival of the fittest, stupid Darwin. The mighty claws, fangs, and horns of many beasts are a terrible weapon. Scriptures have said that the implication of these horns is that they were made of iron, and as such were terrible weapons. One might ask, how do we know the nature of these horns? Are they godly or worldly? Do you remember your Eastern thinking? What is the number four, and what does it say about these horns? And the Lord showed me four carpenters. This may be my favorite part of Zechariah. The King James Version of the Bible uses the word carpenters here for the Hebrew word charash. A charash can be a carpenter, but it is an incomplete image. A charash is really a fabricator or a craftsman. How very fascinating. What were these craftsmen here to do? That was also Zechariah's question. Then said I, What come these to do? And he spake, saying, These are the horns which have scattered Judah, so that no man did lift up his head. But these are come to fray them, to cast out the horns of the Gentiles, which lifted up their horn over the land of Judah to scatter it. Zechariah is told that the craftsmen were sent to fray, or cut off the horns of the nations, who scattered Judah. The nations, now remember Gentile means nations, had been so strong that their power to scatter Judah had been unstoppable. Holy craftsmen were needed to humble these nations and remove their power to hurt Israel. These builders were necessary for their knowledge, just as a master mason, chief potter, or Finnish carpenter is needed to build something lasting. Where a conqueror is merely able to destroy, a craftsman can use the tools of his trade to alter raw matter from chaos into order, from sin into perfection. Be it a trowel, a plummet, a compass or a square, a woodsmith, a blacksmith, a stonesmith, or even a wordsmith is a creator and an organizer on a master level. God is all of these things, and he expects the same of his sons and daughters within their respective spheres of creation and given their individual talents. The greatest rabbis of Israel have said that God called these craftsmen here as a sign to help us discover who they were, who they would yet be, and to know them when they came. The great Rabbi Rashi said that they were the Messiah son of David, the anointed descendant of Joseph sold into Egypt, Elijah, and the righteous high priest Shem, son of Noah. The last two are easy for the rabbis. Elijah, they say, was called to the ministry from his job as a stonemason, a craftsman. Melchizedek, who Rabbi Rashi said was Shem, the son of Noah, worked in wood. He became a woodsmith when he helped his father build the ark. This leaves two for whom the Jews have no good answer, but whom they believe will be, the Messiah, son of David, and the anointed son who would be the descendant of Joseph, who was sold into Egypt. Christians know that Jesus was by trade a carpenter before beginning his earthly ministry. This leaves just one. Some of the greatest preachers of secular Christendom have noted that the best translation of the Hebrew word charash, used here by Zechariah, into English is our English word 
Smith. Indeed, even the famous Reverend F.W. Farrar, chaplain in the Orderary to the Queen of England and Dean of Canterbury, said in 1890 that these four should really be called Smiths and not Carpenters. Did you hear it? Really? Are there any other Smiths out there that might qualify? He would need to be a descendant of Joseph of Egypt. Interestingly enough, this very Joseph of Egypt was a seer, and just so happened to have left us the following restored prophecy. A seer shall the Lord my God raise up, who shall be a choice seer unto the fruit of my loins. Thus saith the Lord God of my fathers unto me, A choice seer will I raise up out of the fruit of thy loins, and he shall be esteemed highly among the fruit of thy loins, and unto him will I give commandment that he shall do a work for the fruit of thy loins, his brethren. And he shall bring them to the knowledge of the covenants which I have made with thy fathers. And he shall do whatsoever work I shall command him. And I will make him great in mine eyes, for he shall do my work. And unto him will I give power to bring forth my word unto the seed of thy loins, and not to the bringing forth of my word only, saith the Lord, but to the convincing them of my word, which shall have already gone forth among them in the last days. Wherefore, the fruit of thy loins shall write, and the fruit of the loins of Judah shall write, and that which shall be written by the fruit of thy loins, and also that which shall be written by the fruit of the loins of Judah, shall grow together unto the confounding of false doctrines, and laying down of contentions, and establishing peace among the fruit of thy loins, and bringing them to a knowledge of their fathers in the latter days, and also to the knowledge of my covenants, saith the Lord. And out of weakness shall he be made strong, in that day when my work shall go forth among all my people, which shall restore them who are of the house of Israel in the last days. And that seer will I bless, and they that seek to destroy him shall be confounded. For this promise I give unto you, for I will remember you from generation to generation, and his name shall be called Joseph, and it shall be after the name of his father, and he shall be like unto you. For the thing which the Lord shall bring forth by his hand shall bring my people unto salvation. And the Lord swore unto Joseph, that he would preserve his seed forever. Those familiar with restored Latter-day history know that the prophet Joseph Smith, Jr. was a junior, meaning that he was named after his father, who was also named Joseph. This last official, Smith, did indeed break the power of secular Christianity, for which he is vehemently hated even still, and was responsible under the Lord's direction for the rededication of Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the Lord's temples in these last days. With the motive of building fresh in the prophet Zechariah's mind, the next vision opened upon him that same night. Zechariah 2.1 I lifted up mine eyes again, and looked, and behold a man with a measuring line in his hand. Having just seen the power of the smiths, in juxtaposition to the destructive force of the beastly horns, Zechariah now sees what a builder can really do, and so he asks the man who is prepping the coming work. Then said I, Whither goest thou? And he said unto me, To measure Jerusalem, to see what is the breadth thereof, and what is the length thereof. 
The Lord had declared the beginning of the smith's work, and the spiritual hosts had to work quickly because the Lord was hotly jealous for the return of Israel. What happens next illustrates that man's ways, and sometimes even the ways of the angels, are not the Lord's ways. He sees the bigger picture and has plans that are often different from ours. Watch what happens here. And behold, the angel that talked with me went forth, and another angel went out to meet him, and said unto him, Run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls, for the multitude of men and cattle therein. The angel measuring Jerusalem for its restoration didn't understand the mind of the Lord. He was going to rebuild Jerusalem, but it was not going to be just a return of the old city. No, it was much more than a restoration. Where David's city had been a capital city with known limits, the Lord's rebuilt Jerusalem was going to be huge. So large, in fact, that walls would not be possible or necessary. No walls of protection? With all the trouble Zerubbabel was having with just the temple construction from passive-aggressive and frequently aggressive-aggressive people, how would this be possible? These concerns by the men called to the work were answered almost as quickly as they formed in their minds. For I, saith the Lord, will be unto her a wall of fire round about, and will be the glory in the midst of her. This gives us a fascinating insight into the plans of the Lord for the second temple. And remember, this temple would have a glory which Solomon's only dreamed about. This second temple would be the footstool of the very Lamb of God, the ultimate purpose of its design and construction. With so great a mission before them, and so large a city being planned, it was time to call the people together. Ho, ho, come forth, and flee from the land of the north, saith the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heaven, saith the Lord. Hebrew has no word for very like we do in English. Very is an intensifier, meaning that any word attached to a very is modified in quantity. A blanket can be fluffy, but if it is very fluffy, then it is really fluffy. In Old Hebrew, if we were to say that our blanket is fluffy, we would say it is fluffy fluffy. So we frequently find the Lord being praised as not only holy, but as holy, holy, holy because he is really, really holy. Do you get it? Thus here the call from the Lord to gather is not just a call. It is a double, passionate, urgent call. Come from the north! Proof that this vision is larger in its scope than just the return of the Jews in Zechariah's day can be found in the global nature of these visions. Clues abound, both from a historical perspective and from the symbols used. That the above call relates to the entire house of Israel is found in the location of these lost sheep's wanderings. The lost ten tribes were last seen in the north, whereas Judah was taken to the east of Jerusalem. Since the lost ten tribes would not be gathered until the last days, this vision is to be read in a larger scope than just the return of the Jews from Babylon, even though their return is definitely included. Joseph Smith would teach, in our day, that the birthright tribe of Ephraim would indeed be taken north, but then be dispersed itself throughout the world into most, if not all, the bloodlines of man. This spreading to the four winds by the Lord included his taking the blood of Joseph of Egypt over the wall of the boundaries of Israel's land, past the walls of even the ocean, 
into the New World and elsewhere. The Book of Mormon contains one of the accounts of the Lord's mercies among the children of men, and does much to explain the grander picture of the Lord's work among all the scattered of Israel, and indeed throughout the entire family of man. It is interesting that as Jerusalem is being rebuilt, the Lord calls to the Jews in Babylon directly. This is necessary for the Lord's coming mortal ministry. Some part of his kin had to be in the Holy Land, with the means of carrying out their part of the atonement. Being that the Messiah's sacrifice was to be born a Jew, at the very least, the Jews had to be back in the land of promise so that the signs could be fulfilled. Hear how the Lord has separated these. Deliver thyself, O Zion, that dwellest with the daughter of Babylon. The Lord has told his prophets that he works in one eternal round. The great advantage of this, while at times confusing to mortal man, is that God is able to fulfill all of his words in an order that is perfectly correct when taken as a whole, but that is not always in an order that man or demon can grasp easily. There are many things that will only be understood perfectly at the end of the earth's heavenly week, although it is true that words given in the Spirit can be understood by the Spirit, since it is also beyond the constraints of mortal time. Much of Isaiah, and all apocalyptic holy writing, is structured thus. The entire plan, when seen from the end, will be one great whole, even if it appears scattered and confusing in the present. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, After the glory hath he sent me unto the nations which spoiled you. For he that toucheth you toucheth the apple of his eye. This verse has posed problems for scholars, but it is a fine example of the Lord's timetable. The glory of his newly rebuilt Jerusalem shall be the earthly presence of Jerusalem's greatest king, the Lord himself the great high priest, in whom Melchizedek, the first king of Jerusalem, was but a shadow. The Lord is also the great and true king of Israel, of whom David was but a type. This great one would suddenly appear in his holy temple, and visit his people despite their sins, and be unto them the true teacher of righteousness, a living example in their midst. The one who would explain the law of Moses in word and deed, and explain the very mysteries of heaven outlining the path back to God. He himself would come, and after this glory, the holy words would be sent to the very same nations which had so harmed Israel. The very ones that hurt Israel were the same ones the Lord was trying to save. They were his eye's only focus, so to speak. His eye was single to his purpose of salvation, in other words. How would he ultimately do this? He says, For behold, I will shake mine hand upon them, and they shall be a spoil to their servants. And ye shall know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me. The Messiah's message was embraced mainly by the poor and humble of the nations. Many times it was the servants of the mighty that heard and followed. It was the shepherds in the fields that heard the angels sing. And it was disciples like Joanna, who was the wife of King Herod's steward, who followed the Lord. Much of Jesus' trials in his ministry came from the elders and elitists of his own clan. When Christianity took hold, it was the servants and poorer classes who embraced it to the great fear of the emperors and powerful houses. In time, they did spoil the old ways, and many did come to know the name of the Lord. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I come, and I will dwell in the midst of thee, saith the Lord. And many nations shall be joined to the Lord in that day. 
and shall be my people, and I will dwell in the midst of thee, and thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto thee. And the Lord shall inherit Judah his portion in the holy land, and shall choose Jerusalem again. Be silent, O all flesh, before the Lord, for he is raised up out of his holy habitation. The Lord has promised the children of Israel that he would be their bridegroom. Many doubted the possibility of such after Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed their national culture and, worse, their holy temple. Here the Lord tells the people that he is still the bridegroom and that he, like a young male suitor watching another flirt with his intended, has grown jealous. Israel had been rehearsing the coming wedding in their festivals for over five hundred years, and it seemed that the wedding would never come. But no, one of the major reasons for the return of the temple was that God was coming, and this time to dwell in the midst of them. Israel was going to meet her husband at last. Moreover, many other nations would join in the true religion. The light upon the hill that Israel had covenanted to be would at last happen, just as it had been foretold. The family of Noah would be led to the tree of life at last by the birthright children of Abraham. The time of all the promises of the patriarchs of Israel was drawing closer, and it was time for humanity to shut their mouths, listen, and pay attention. Heavenly communication such as these went a long way in giving the poor and beat-up children of Judah the strength, encouragement, and fortitude to rebuild the temple despite many and numerous hardships. This has been another wonderful feast at the table of the Lord. But like all good things, we need to stop. But we are not yet done with Zechariah's amazing series of visions. We are excited to see what our author and historian has to share on the visions that come next. <laughs> 